0: Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight.
1: I gained a whole new respect for estrogen. It is a hormone that, it's been ignored. It's only talked about like when somebody reaches menopause.
0: Today, Dr. Kara Akebach, an assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame, returns to the podcast to discuss her recent publications, Woman the Hunter, The Physiologic Evidence, and Human Bodies in Extreme Environments on this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior Vice President and Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and returning to the podcast today is Dr. Kara Ackerbach. Dr. Ackerbach is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Director of the Human Energenics Laboratory and a concurrent faculty member of the Department of Gender Studies. Dr. Kara Ackerbach, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Tim, for having me back on and on a, on a different topic that's gone kind of viral.
0: You know, it's been, yeah, it's been about 14 months and I have to say, wow. You have been busy. So many interesting. Also, it's pub- been
1: fourteen months.
0: Fourteen months.
1: I thought I thought like it was two months ago or something at most. That's wild.
0: So many interesting publications that we just couldn't turn it down. Um, first, um, I know in the last podcast you teased "Woman the Hunter" and that really piqued my interest. So it seems that that project has borne quite a bit of fruit. Um, <laughs> by my count, three publications. Two, an American anthropologist and one in scientific America. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Amazing.
0: Yeah. And the two articles about Woman the Hunter, you know, there's the physiologic evidence and the archeologic evidence. You know, as a physician, I'm going to focus in on the physiologic one.
1: And that's why I'm talking to you and not my colleague, Dr. Sarah Lacey. <laughs>
0: and, you know, I don't want to give archeologic uh, evidence a short shrift. Can you give us a brief? Taste of that. And before we even get into that, I want to know for the listeners, and I think I recall you talking about this, but why did you take on this topic?
1: Yeah. So this kind of comes from two different parts of my life one a little bit on more of the personal side and one more on the professional side. And the personal one came first. Uh, So I think, as we talked about on the show previously, um, you know that I'm a former powerlifter. Back injury has taken me out of the game. But uh, when I was in the gym, I would be told, kind of insane things like don't lift too heavy your boobs will shrink uh or you lift like a man you might as well be a man all these kind of insane sex based stereotypes about what male bodies are supposed to be able to do and what female bodies are supposed to be able to do and i was teaching exercise physiology at the time and you know the the original section on you know sex differences and various things was pretty small because i'm sure as a physician you know research on women and exercise phys is woefully inadequate
0: You know, we we we, we've touched on that topic quite a few times in the podcast about just diverse representation. Period in the clinical data is very lame.
1: Females are not just small males, and you shouldn't treat them as such in any way, shape, or form. Um, But you know, those conversations with the Jim Bros kind of got me thinking. Well, what's the actual scientific? basis for these stereotypes? Is there one? And so I just started doing this on my own. This was like six or seven years ago, Tim. So, you know, well before Woman the Hunter ever became an inkling of an idea in my mind. Um, So I just started looking into it and I learned things that made me stop and say, why in the world did no one teach us this like earlier in school? And, you know, you get kind of infuriated at it. And, you know, there's a very generalized uh, basic idea that Males are better suited for like the power strength, anaerobic style activities, and females seem to be better suited for the ultra-endurance style of activities. And no one mentioned that kind of thing uh, in any class I'd ever taken. So that was part one of kind of the academic side, looking at the physiology of it. Part two actually happened here at Notre Dame when I started teaching the introductory biological anthropology course. And I do this really kind of silly assignment with my students where I have them come up with an online dating profile for the fossil hominin of their choosing. It's a fun thing, and, and it you know, gets them to talk about the characteristics. And that class is almost always like 60 to 70% female to like 30 to 40% male. It always skews female, no matter what. But when they were turning in the assignments, the vast majority, and I'm talking like 80%, wrote the dating profile from the perspective of a male. And they were defaulting to this idea that our ancestors were male in some way, like females weren't part of the story. And I'm like, well, why in the world is that going on? And so that kind of got me into looking about the history of anthropology and realizing, yeah, textbooks leave out the roles of, of females in human evolution. Uh, and a lot of studies do the same. So that's kind of how it came together um, for that the inspiration for Woman the Hunter.
0: No, no, that's great. And I I find the the archaeological evidence Pretty fascinating. I want to take it from, you know, sort of a physician's perspective, because I noticed that one of the things you talked about is sort of pathology that, you know, that was noticed in, in you know, the fossil records that match to modern, you know, injuries. And I think that that's really fascinating. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: This is the best study ever. This is not my study. Uh, but however, one of my my graduate advisor, Dr. Eric Trinkhouse, was actually the one who did this study. And he took a look at the different injury rate patterns among Neanderthals. So we're talking about and even early modern humans 30,000 years and older. Uh, and the injury rates and the use wear rates of so things like arthritis that show up are the exact same between females and males. I want to set that up there. And this would mean the most parsimonious explanation is they are doing the same things. Um, more recently in time, when we do see a deep sexual division of labor, we do see differences in the bones. but prior to 30,000 years, no differences. But the best part about this one is that the injuries that we see among Neanderthals match the injuries that you see among modern-day rodeo clowns, which is hilarious, uh, first and foremost. But second... Right,
0: if you are gonna work clowns into any kind of study, that's awesome.
1: And rodeo clowns especially. Um, so <laughs> And so this has been interpreted as, like rodeo clowns, Neanderthals were up-close-and-personal with the animals that they were hunting and taking down, that they had to do this up-close stabbing with spears sort of thing for a lot of the hunting they did with large game. Uh, This would not have been true for any smaller game that they would have gone after, but the large ones, they weren't taking those things down with projectiles from far away. They were up-close-and-personal with them.
0: And I read another article when I did my initial search of Woman the Hunter, and it came up, um, some other author, some other editor brought up, some other research by randy house i guess at uc davis yeah, randy house. yeah and um yeah this is you know the premise of the article was is that big game hunting was likely gender neutral um as you just pointed out but also that they found nine thousand year old human remains and that people were initially like oh there's all these stone projectiles all these hunting things this must have been a really important dude pardon me man and it turned out the person who was there said Oh no! These bones are those of a woman,
1: mm-hmm. and it turns out a number of the grave sites in that region that he works at were also women buried with various hunting implements. Uh, and I mean, one that's an, it's an awesome study, and I love it. And and poor Randy has also you know faced backlash of somehow these projectiles were owned by the women but used by the men. You're you're getting a lot of these weird just so stories to try to keep saying that it was only men doing the hunting. Um, yeah, I know. It's a thing. You wouldn't believe the trolls I'm dealing with on Twitter right now.
0: <laughs> well, the, the good news is, is that we don't, we don't get trolls here. Um, everyone's just here to listen to the experts and the findings. And I like, I, I'm a huge fan of parsimony. I think that the, you know, the simplest explanation is often, most often the correct one. So one of the other things I really liked, and this is going to bring us over to physiology and anatomy, which Sadly, as a physician, it, we always want to bring it back to that.
1: Don't be sad. It's the cool stuff, man. It's all right. It, it is. It is, actually.
0: <laughs> and it ties into to modern humans as well, I think. It's something we can learn about ourselves and our metabolism is that, first, the whole concept of early human hunting, um, you bring up the point, and a lot of other folks have, that this is you know exhausting work. People have to... You're not just going to happen upon an animal that you want to eat, and it's just going to lay down or stay in there while you take a nice shot at it with your arrow or spear, you're going to have to pursue it.
1: Uh And you have a low chance of success even when you do.
0: Right. And so that brings us to sort of, you know, the exercise science and how likely women are physiologically better suited for this kind of endurance um, than men. Uh So can you touch a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, this is the stuff that I find really, really fascinating. And I learned a ton, you know, the six, seven years ago when I was going into this and I gained a whole new respect for estrogen. It is a hormone that it's been ignored. It's only talked about like when somebody reaches menopause. And <laughs> when in all reality, every single body needs estrogen to survive because estrogen itself is so much older than testosterone. And by older, I'm I'm actually talking about the receptor. We can't actually date when hormones came about, but we can get an idea about when the receptor for those hormones did. And the estrogen receptor hormone is at least twice as old as the testosterone receptor hormone. And it's highly likely that the testosterone receptor is a duplicate of the estrogen receptor. And all of this predates sexual reproduction as well, like before sperm and eggs were ever a thing. Uh, and so estrogen seems kind of critical to life. And this is why things like estrogen insensitivity as opposed to androgen insensitivity. Estrogen insensitivity is incredibly, incredibly rare. And only one form I'm aware of has been found of, of which only three people have ever been diagnosed. And it was actually on a minor estrogen receptor, not even one of the major ones. Um, but as this relates to to endurance, sorry, I love estrogen and I get really excited oh, no. to talk about mean, it.
0: I mean, I think that that's very important because to your point, a lot of even in the, even in the medical literature, people are focused on testosterone. And if you just listen to lay stuff, it's like, you know, I mean, on the sports radio station, I listen to, you know, they're like, Oh, I'm going to, you know, I this tea supplement, you know, and you're a real animal in the gym, bro. And it's like, okay, we've, we've heard about testosterone. Now estrogen, she's up. You get to, t- well, he and she is up. You get to talk about
1: Everyone's it. Got it. That's yeah, that's it. Thing. Everyone's got it. That's it. Everyone's got it. And I mean, on a side note with that, some people have actually started using estrogen as a performance-enhancing drug as well, because they're they're, they're queuing into this pretty neat little science. Uh, but so one of the big things that estrogen does, it's increases the amount of fat somebody is burning, particularly during exercise. And so your listeners likely know this, but fat has more than twice the number of calories per gram than carbohydrates or protein. And it's also the slow-burning macronutrient. It takes much longer to break that down and use for energy. How this translates into endurance, it means that you can run for longer without hitting that wall of fatigue because you're going to have a larger pool of energy over a longer period of time. Uh, and estrogen seems to increase that through a bunch of different mechanisms. Uh, and it also seems to ha- help prevent cellular damage incurred during you know, excessive heat and excessive exercise. It seems to stabilize cell membranes. So that females, because females typically on average have more estrogen than males, they actually incur less cellular damage after doing the exact same intensity workout. Males are getting far more cellular damage and having to take longer to recover than females do.
0: And, and, uh, you know, there's a there's a phenomenon in medicine that we talk about, which is a march hemoglobinuria, which, you know, people who have been marched a long way, they start the cell, the muscle breakdown starts turning their urine a coca-cola colored it's a it's it's a board question and i love how you bring up sort of a locally here in massachusetts um incident to sort of talk about how women aren't supposed to be doing this um in the boston marathon story where the very first woman to run in the boston marathon had to actually sneak her way on to the course sneak her
1: way on and then actually had to fight off the course manager who tried to physically pull her off the course. Because women shouldn't be running the marathons, Tim.
0: Right. Well, and I mean, I think that the the, the data is starting to, and we have uh, several people that work here. Um, one of my colleagues, his wife is a marathoner, and, and their times are starting to approach the male times. And there's some folks who say it's just a matter of time until parity is reached. But the point you bring out in the article is is that a marathon is just the beginning of sort of endurance. There are other far longer endurance races where female participants are starting to actually outshine the males.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And yeah, we're seeing this with ultra marathon running, swimming. Females have always been really, really good at, you know, the English channel, these crazy long endurance swims. Uh, And we're seeing it with biking too. And this goes back to kind of how we started this conversation, at least I think how we started it. And that the exercise physiology research has been focusing on the ways in which to optimize male performance. It's it's all oh, the the nutrition, the training, the recovery, all of that has been on males, or at least the vast majority of it. We haven't even begun to figure out how to optimize female performance.
0: Right, and, and so that, that takes me to the next section where you did a, in, in the article for Scientific American, you um, sort of compared and contrasted the female associated features that confer endurance versus the male, you know, estrogen is clearly one of them, but um, there's also muscle fiber differences um, Yeah, and so forth.
1: Yeah. So there, as again, as listeners here likely know, there are different kinds of muscle fibers. Uh, there are the type one, which are your slow oxidative, your your type 2X, which is our, your fast glycolytic, and then you have your type 2A, which are your fast oxidative. Females tend to have more of the type one, the slow oxidative. Those are your endurance ones. That's the energizer bunny that just keeps going and going and going. The type two X, those are your anaerobic power strength sports, power lifting sports ones. And then as I tell my students, the type two A are the switcheroos. Um, they are the ones that are kind of intermediate between the two, but that can also with training behave more like type one or like type two X. Uh, females have proportionally greater number of type one Uh, muscle fibers than males do so their muscle composition is also better set up for endurance
0: and and i love the article that you um you posted which is kind of a in your face gym bros that in a study um at max weight females were able to do more reps than 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 the males
1: (laughs) yep absolutely true then that's part of that endurance and the delayed fatigue Uh, females do not suffer from that fatigue the way males do
0: and i think that the other thing that i wanted to sort of talk about here is also some of the other the the concept that evolution was only acting on male participants and that the the females were more passively affected by evolution
1: yeah this is the old like this is that the, the man the hunter from the 1960s and you know even in one of the chapters, it kind of is explicitly saying, you know, hunting is what made us humans. Men are better suited for hunting and females are better suited for things that take less psychological and physical stress like plants that don't move. And so all of this is based on the idea that hunting made us human. Men did the hunting. Evolution acted on men and females are these passive beneficiaries that get dragged along in the process. And I mean, even if women weren't hunting. That's a pretty outrageous claim.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would I would agree if anyone who, you know, has been alive, you know, and in our modern era has seen, you know, sort of the division of labor that we now ask women, especially women of childbearing years who bear children to work and bear children and care for their children, um, know that you know, there's a lot of more influence of what's going on. Um, and perhaps that's the maybe that's the endurance advantage.
1: Yeah. So if I can give you a sneak peek on something I'm I'm toying with in my mind these days is I actually think that our endurance capabilities as humans, and I, I think this is going to be one of these cases of cross-sex genetic correlation, that the underlying physiology for endurance is actually related to the underlying physiology for pregnancy. A lot of the physiological changes we see associated with pregnancy mirror almost one for one, with the exception of heart rate, the physiological changes associated with endurance training. And it may have been the evolution of our striding bipedalism that was actually able to unlock that capacity that was already in place.
0: Right. And I think the heart rate, if I'm going to remember my ob jin it may be the, the plasma volume expansion that goes on in pregnancy. And that's that's counter To what goes on more so in probably endurance training, as I know that more red blood cells, less plasma.
1: Correct. And their heart rate goes down with training. So that's that's the one big difference. But the way oxygen is dealt with, the way the muscles are responding, the way the metabolism responds, it's very much, and the way the heart responds, especially, you see real true cardiac changes associated with pregnancy to accommodate the extra volume, which you would also see with higher volume with uh, endurance training.
0: Right. And hence folks also, when we look at people who are at higher altitudes and I remember that, I'll give you my example, um, from my medical training, I went to peak nine medical clinic in Colorado and we used to take CBCs and it would be like, everybody here, you know, has polycythemia vera, or like the, And like, and then the attendings like, no, everyone here's at altitude. So they're going to have a much higher hematocrit than sort of you lowlanders there, um, out here on Cape Cod, uh, at sea level. Yeah. Interesting stuff. If you don't mind, I'd like to switch yeah. gears a little bit to yet another article, a review article you published, Human Bodies in Extreme Environments.
1: Oh, yeah, that was oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, what are we talking about now? A- <laughs> no, no,
0: I, I wanted to bring this in. I thought that that was a great review article. And I wanted to bring that in because it, it's apropos, because a lot of our leaders are meeting for a climate change meeting right now in Dubai. And. I think it's very apropos to talk about adaptive changes, not just physiologic, but you also talk about cultural um, changes that we may have to revisit as our climate becomes more extreme and and more hot in some places.
1: Absolutely. So this article was um, it was an exciting one to do because it kind of became a bit of a culmination of a lot of things that I've been talking about and thinking about for a while and thinking about how we take what we know and understand about the way human bodies respond to extremes and projecting that into the future for exactly the reasons you said of what are going to be our actual biological limitations when it comes to climate change? At what point are our bodies going to be like, no, nope, technology is going to be the only way to go and the only way to deal with this? And um, and and then several things with, you know, climate change as well as socioeconomic disadvantages, too. Uh, I, I think the the biological, anthropological work has a lot to add to this because we, we take a look at what's physiologically happening and anatomically happening, and then the ways in which folks are dealing with this on a behavioral level. Um, and I, I see this, you know, with the reindeer herders that I work with, of, of how climate change is affecting them literally on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I've also had Dr. Francois Heyman on uh, to talk about our exposure. And one of the points he makes, and I think you also did in your article, is that you know, we evolved initially in a very hot climate and then we had to adapt as things move on. But this is obviously, you know, millennia where we we physiologically adapted, but there's also behavioral adaptation. But then when you disrupt these things so quickly, I mean, we also, I think you and I had a discussion about sort of the thrifty gene. It's the same sort of thing. You can't change Genetics that fast, yeah, yeah. It, it's not possible. Our
1: reproductive, also, our reproductive rate just isn't fast enough to to deal with how fast the climate is changing. Um, like our, our generation time is much too long for us to be able to physiologically evolve and in, in response to this. Mice and fruit
0: flies will outlive us, probably. Uh,
1: cockroaches, yeah, that's it, and, and the, cockroach. <laughs> the cockroaches, Um,
0: you do talk. It's interesting. I know as I looked in the article and I saw you talk about the big three. Um, now as a Boston Celtics fan of a certain age, the big three mean Bird, Parrish, and McHale, but that's not who you're talking about. When you talk about the big three, Sorry. you're talking about, no, that's all right. You're talking about hot, cold, <laughs> and altitude as the influencers. Correct. Um, and I foresee probably folks focusing much more in this article when they read it um, for hot. Although, from what I've read from some of the literature in climate change, there are going to be some areas of the world that are going to experience cold that normally don't. So, What are some of the things that from that article stand out to you that are lessons that we might be able to learn? Is it clothing? Is it how we, what time of day we do our activities? What are the?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really wonderful question. And I think a lot of it is putting in place the proper planning and infrastructure to manage it. I I think one of the best case examples of this is Texas, when they got hit with that major ice storm and the power grids went down and people didn't have heating in, in their homes, all of these things. I think we're going to have to be a lot better at figuring out ways to produce sustainable technology that can handle very rapid changes in environments. And that's exactly what happened in Texas. That was a rapid snap change that led to a lot of problems and a lot of health issues for people. And so, yeah, there's going to be a behavioral aspect of it as well. But I think a lot of us are so reliant on, you know, technological infrastructure, our heaters, our air conditioners, all of those things. We are going to really need to bolster those systems. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, I think that and and from a point of view that I'm actually involved with this technology is that out here on uh, the Cape Cod, we frequently lose power because lines get blown over, um, which led and not wanting to use fossil fuels because a lot of people have, you know, gas or propane powered generators. We went ahead and got solar panels and a large battery whose name I won't say because the owner of the company makes me angry. but. Um, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, we are n- not off the grid in a sense, but very, w- we make our own energy and we use it. And I think that that's just a small slice of what we can think about, um, when we're moving forward with this. But I also think that there's some technology about, um, water purification that doesn't require techno- that doesn't require energy and things such as that, because it's not just going to be heating and cooling. It's also going to be, how are we going to purify our air?
1: Yeah. And our yeah, desalinating. I mean, I think a lot of people, and rightfully so, believe that the next large wars, world wars, will be fought over water access. And that wouldn't surprise me in the least. That is about to be the commodity that is in highest demand and shortest supply. At least drinkable water. <laughs> drinkable water. Yeah.
0: Well, um, Dr. Ackerbach, this is Ben. Another amazing discussion. I want to thank you, and I'm so glad that I sort of kept that chit um from the last podcast and when you teased woman the hunter um and I want to encourage folks who have listened to the podcast um the The two articles that are in um the anthropologic journal might be a little intense, but I think the scientific American article is amazing and i I read all three of them. I think they're great um and we, next publication you have, perhaps this one you're thinking about, we'll have you back to talk about that.
1: It'll be the book, actually. Oh. The, the, the the book is, yeah, yeah, we might be talking about a book next time. Uh, that's due in January. Well, hopefully is due in January. But also I want to express to any listeners here that the two American Anthropologist articles are behind a paywall, but totally email me and I will send you the PDFs because that's what authors do.
0: <laughs> All right. No, that's great. Um, I'd like to thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you, Tim. And that's today's episode of The Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions, please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Kara Akabak, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.